Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Sarah Wegmiller, and I'm a research assistant for the Center for Environmental Law and Policy at Yale. I'm in the studio today with Sarah Krakoff, professor of law at the University of Colorado School of Law, for part two of our two-part podcast. Professor Krakoff teaches and writes in the area of American Indian law, natural resources and public land law, environmental ethics, and climate change. She co-authored one of the leading casebooks in the field of American Indian law, and her article, Examining the Effects of Federal Law on the Navajo Nation's Exercise of Sovereignty, a narrative of sovereignty illuminating the paradox of the domestic dependent nation, has been cited in several federal district court opinions. Professor Krakoff, thank you for joining us today. Uh, You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to talk now about the nexus of American Indian law and domestic environmental law. Um, First, you've written that the environmental aspects of Indian tribal law are understudied. Why do you think this is? I think the first reason is that all issues with respect to American Indian law are understudied, um, and this is particularly notable whenever I come back to the East Coast. I think there's a more of a sort of a, a presence of American Indian nations in the West uh, and much less so here. And that leads to another reason, which is what people do tend to know about tribes today, unfortunately, is whether or not they have a casino. So this has so dominated, I think, people's understanding and thinking about American Indian nations that uh, it just sort of erases any kind of other understanding. So, so, so first is sort of just a general problem. Like people don't know that there are 566 federally recognized tribes, that there are you know, a range of sizes of Indian nations and populations um, and very, very diverse cultures and governance structures, um, and that they're political entities, that they're sovereigns and with their own legal systems. So, um, so that's, that's step one, is absence of any information about tribes generally as governments. Um, and then step two is so that they would also have their own traditional uh, ecological knowledge, first of all, and second of all, um, present-day governing and legal systems that attempt to implement both contemporary and traditional values is, I think, just very remote from most people's knowledge base. Mm-hmm. I'm nodding along. I, I completely agree that I, I think um, maybe it's an ignorance or at least just a lack of public awareness of of 566 tribes here in the United States and also the legal systems that um, would be used in a more cultural um, um, group like this wouldn't necessarily be familiar to people studying law at, at, a, at a traditional law school. Um, and I expect that many listeners are also unfamiliar with American Indian law, um, and it seems that there are those laws that address the relationship between tribes and the federal government, those that govern internal affairs, and those that focus on natural resources. Um, can you give us an overview of the different facets of Indian law? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I can give you an overview of the field. <laughs> In five minutes. In five minutes. Right. Um, so, so, so tribes are um, sovereign nations with aspects of sovereignty that they lost um, by virtue of kind of various declarations in by, by our federal government. Um, and those include external relations. So tribes can't enter into treaties with foreign nations. They can't have their own immigration policy or foreign policy. And that's been true 
since you know the founding of our republic. Um, although interestingly, I think there are some tribes that that fight against that in the Mohawk Nation, among others, issues their own passports. But that's another that's another topic. So there's resistance <laughs> even to that, but that's a pretty accepted premise of American Indian law. Um, and then the mantra then is that, that, but, you know, tribes retain inherent sovereign authority to govern their members and their territory. And uh, there are many caveats to that, but it nonetheless as a starting point remains true. So tribes can govern their members and their territory. Uh, and um, of the 566 tribes that are federally recognized in the United States, there's a vast array of different kinds of governance structures. So some tribes have a tripartite um, separation of power system of government that looks very much like states in the United States. So Navajo Nation is one example. And then other tribes that are smaller would tend to have sort of unitary federal executive and, um, I'm sorry, legislative, executive, and judicial branches. And some of the Pueblo tribes have that kind of unified government. Um, So that's just to give a sense of the diversity Uh, And so within that, the powers that tribes have most clearly are the powers to determine their own membership um, and then also uh, to enact sort of various domestic laws that affect their members. The questions that are the diciest um, in large part because of a recent series of Supreme Court cases are the extent to which tribes can govern non-members. And for the most part there, we're talking about non-Indians, but also just um, people who are not members of the governing tribe. And so this is where environmental, environmental regulation can get tricky for tribes. Uh, th- there are some helpful statutes and also helpful lower court decisions that affirm if tribes have been recognized by the EPA to run their own environmental programs, clean air and clean water, they can, um, in addition to regulating their own members, regulate non-Indians, which makes a great deal of sense because if you can only regulate every other person, say, within a jurisdiction, you're not going to be able to have a comprehensive, say, clean air protection program. Um, so that's just bringing the larger body of Indian law closer to the environmental context to, to maybe give a concrete example of how um, federal law you know, dictates the outer boundaries of what tribes can do in terms of regulation and jurisdiction. And at least in this one context for the moment, um, seems to be recognizing the importance of tribal governing authority over the reservation environment in a way that includes regulation of non-Indians. That's very interesting. Um, I guess along those lines, how does American Indian law compare to civil or common law traditions um, in terms of the relationship between humans and nature? So I'm going to change the question just a little bit, please. <laughs> and, and so um, instead of answering it in terms of how American Indian law compares, mm-hmm. I, I think maybe what you're trying to get at is what are the cultural traditions, which would also be expressed in law, but here I would say tribal law, like tribal law of each individual tribe with respect to the non-human world as compared to our dominant traditions. Is that a fair That's perfect. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so as far as I know, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a tribal member myself, um, so what I know is from working with tribes and Indian people and, and from reading and studying, um, but in general, um, indigenous peoples in the United States have cultural traditions and worldviews 
that are grounded in a relationship to the non-human world. So the starting point is, you know, our cosmology is about how we as humans have obligations to other species and even inanimate objects. And they are very place-based. Uh, and so the obligations to other species and non-human objects are um, all sort of bound up in creation stories relating to particular places where tribes are from and live. And so most, and again, one should be careful about overgeneralizing, but American Indian scholars describe it this way too. Most American Indian religions and cultural worldviews, and they're all bound up, you really can't separate them, um, are themselves an environmental ethic. Like that's the starting point. Um, And the daily rituals and annual rituals and seasonal rituals are all about perpetuating relationships with particular places and other species. And um, so that's, that's, I think, a key, a key difference and one that sort of sets in motion habits, daily habits, annual habits, and just ways of thinking about and knowing your world that are quite distinct from the dominant religions and cultures. How, how would you suggest reconciling these two? I mean, we're in the United States. You know, there's a federal government here, and there's indigenous cultures which have indigenous laws and rights and, and two very different approaches to the human interaction with nature. How have, how have we seen this interaction? I, I guess it hasn't been positive for most of, um, most of the time that, that we've seen you know, European settlers coming here and developing our own legal system. But how do, how do you suggest reconciling these two very different traditions? Uh, well, I mean, I think a starting point is just confrontation and knowledge of of the other, right? That's a good starting point. I mean, I think so when, I mean, today there are several kinds of misunderstandings, I think, that occur between indigenous peoples and the and, and, and non-indigenous peoples who don't work or, you know, spend a lot of time in that world. Um, and one is just the political and legal status that we touched on, right? So tribes are right. sovereign nations with, with certain limitations, but they are governments um, who, whose inherent powers predate, you know, the arrival of Europeans. So that's one big gap that causes all kinds of misunderstandings. Um, another gap, um, sort of more relevant in a way to the previous question, is that some many non-Indians have enough of a sense of this different indigenous cosmology and, and cultural and spiritual worldview to to misunderstand it and expect things from Indian communities that are sort of unreasonable. Um, and, and, you know, so although I think the description of Indian religion and culture is accurate as far as I can say, um, that doesn't mean that every single Native person is some sort of perfect green environmentalist <laughs> in the conventional sense. And I think that gap also causes the gap between that expectation or that desire on the part of some non-Indians um, causes a lot of trouble when they try to work with Native groups. So they want, oh, well, then why are you engaging in resource extraction if you're so if your spiritual worldview is environmental? It's like, well, that's just sort of a misunderstanding um, because tribes, like every entity, have to figure out a way to engage in economic development. And the options open to tribes are the same as the ones open to everybody else in our in our society right now, right? Um, 
And so, so here's how I think things could fit together nonetheless. I, I think that the way that um, the indigenous cultural and spiritual and environmental worldview um, plays itself out in native communities that still have the capacity to honor those traditions is a pretty deep and intimate and personal ecological knowledge. Right, so even if people don't act like green environmentalists every day, it's 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 pretty breathtaking if you spend time in Indian country how much people know about their landscape, and therefore what they know about how to take care of it, even as things are changing dramatically as they are because of climate change. So it's that way of thinking about and relating to and interacting with your environment, um, even if it's not pristine, and even if on occasion you have to use it to engage in economic development. That I think, you know, that's where I think the two worlds can meet and can meet really readily, right? What what ecologists, conservation biologists are learning about, you know, are some of the very same things that many traditional indigenous communities sort of already know and pass on to every generation. Right. Right. It seems like um, it seems like it's a fantastic resource and and that these nations could help inform us about natural resource policy and and law at a federal maybe maybe starting at a local and then state and federal um level um i'm wondering what are the major environmental issues you mentioned mining um that that tribes are facing today and um how well can those be addressed internally as well as as opposed to federally um yeah, resource extraction is is a big one for tribes, at least in, in the western part of the United States. Uh, the the draw and lure of royalties and tax revenue and economic development and jobs that come with traditional resource extraction have been difficult for some tribes to transition themselves out of. Um, and... I think some tribes are responding internally to grassroots pressure from within their own communities um, and also to their own both traditional environmental laws that have become part of their own tribal codes. Um, to So they're responding to both of those sorts of things from within their own communities to figure out answers to the question that do come from within tribal law and governance themselves. Um, federal environmental laws do apply in most circumstances to uh, activities on tribal lands. So there are also federal regulations that come into play um, and enter into those kinds of conflicts. Uranium is, uh, is you know, back as a market, you know, there's a lot of interest in uranium development again, um, although there was a slight dip after the earthquake in Japan last year, but I think it's recovered. So the price of uranium is high again so that will be another recurring challenge, I think, for tribes in the West, because in the Colorado Plateau in particular, there's a huge uranium resource. Um, right now, the Navajo Nation has a moratorium on mining any uranium from within Indian country because of the really horrible history of mining and its effects there. Uh, and so straying a bit from my backyard, um, I think everyone knows, I think everyone, at least in, in our world, knows that the most significant challenges facing natives in the Arctic, um, the Alaska mm-hmm. Native villages in the Arctic and up in the Arctic Circle, uh, is climate change yeah. and the melting of the permafrost and changing of migratory, migratory patterns and and so forth. So that one is a little harder to address <laughs> slowly from within uh 
the laws of the native villages, um, you know, obviously they need a response, a big response to this big collective action problem. And they are, are already in the era of adaptation um, with, you know, a couple of villages already in the process of relocating. So those, those issues are quite different and probably the most dramatic in terms of communities already affected by climate change. Right. Um, Professor Krakoff, I have, I have just one final question. I'm interested in um, theories of sustainability and how I, I, we, we were talking a little bit off, off air, and um, we recognize that there's not actually a, there's neither a, ter- a standard nor a real understanding of, of sustainability. And I'm just curious if you have experience with um, indigenous um, or tribal culture and, and approaches there to, to an idea of sustainability in contrast to the kind of messy, um, unknown threshold of, of sustainability that, that we see in media and are trying to practice and trying to figure out um, um, here today? Well, I, I guess I would just return to this idea of an ethic of how to relate with the natural world on a daily basis. Like that's one way of thinking about sustainability. Like how do we um, every day think about, use, consume, but just also know and relate to the non-human world. Uh, and, And so there maybe what sustainability means is more your own life practices are sustainable. Um, that makes it sort of separate and apart from the question of whether or not you're actually in a material way um, using up the Earth's resources in a way that leaves enough of them for future generations, right? Because I think it's that second definition that is the one that is at least attempted to be implemented in the, in, in the rest of the world, right? That's sort of what we've been talking about for the last several decades. Like, how do right. we structure our economic systems so that we are leaving enough resources, including, you know, just nature working on its own, even though I earlier challenged that idea, but nature working on its own for future generations to appreciate, love, enjoy, spend time in. Um, And so, and I guess maybe the two can relate because, and and this is a bit utopian, (laughs) um, but if if somehow, you know, each of our individual approaches to life and interacting with the non-human world were sustainable in that other sense, you know, we're just thoughtful and careful and knowledgeable on a daily basis, perhaps that would translate into this larger outcome-based sustainability that um, I think many of us think we need to be cognizant of in a world um, now over 7 billion people, um, the developed parts of which, you know, use up uh, way more than their share, right? So so we, we do have to be concerned about the material definition even though we found it very elusive in terms of implementation. And um, so that's my best attempt to try to put those two together. Right. That's great. It's almost like parenting a child and then developing the same theme to parenting the world. Um, Sarah, thank you again for speaking with us today. We really appreciate your time and insights. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.